Nick, I can't believe COVID is still going on. And we also have something called the Delta variant that is basically making all of our numbers go back up again. It's really been a crazy year and a half. I know. And I think one of the things that I'm really happy for is that as I'm like standing in the ante room, getting ready to get all the carb on and going into a room and thinking about like, what do I need to do for this pregnant patient? I have the OBG project resource literally in my pocket on my phone that I can scroll through quickly before I have to put it down and get the gloves on. One of the great things about the OBG project is that you can also subscribe to OBG First, which allows you to create your own bookshelf. It allows you to have all those handy resources right where you want them instead of having to scroll through everything. Chief residents can actually get a free year of OBG First by heading over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and checking out the sidebar. Residents in general can also get access to the resident core curriculum for absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, check out the sidebar. You can get all of these resources from the awesome folks at the OBG Project for absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So today we're back with our second part of our series on endometriosis. So Nick, what are we going to talk about today? So just as a refresher, in our last episode, we defined endometriosis and reviewed some of the theories behind how endometriosis happens and talked about evaluation and diagnosis. Today's episode is really going to focus on the management of endometriosis, both the medical and the surgical and everything in between. So Faye, I guess let's just get right off since we talked already last week about diagnosis of endometriosis. How are we going to approach treatment? So our approach for treatment should be based on the severity of symptoms and make sure that, first of all, other causes of pelvic pain are excluded. We talked a little bit about how to do that last episode, like with imaging and things like that to make sure that, you know, their pelvic pain is not because of fibroids or other structural abnormalities um, or other, you know, things inside the pelvis. So for example, things like urinary tract infections or, you know, any bowel symptoms. Usually medications are the first things that we reach for because of risks, recovery, and costs of surgery. Um, And also you should have a discussion of desire for future fertility with your patient to help guide your management. If this is a patient that definitely wants to preserve their fertility, you know, the definitive management with like removing their uterus and ovaries and tubes probably is not going to be the first thing that you reach for. You also then want to review with the patient that just like a lot of other diseases, endometriosis is a chronic disease, meaning that it's not curable, but can be treated and can be managed. And also discuss that the road through treatment can be long and that one mode of therapy that is effective for one person may not be effective for another person. We kind of first talked about medical approaches, right? So Nick, walk me through some of those medicines that we can use to treat endometriosis. Yeah, there are a ton of medicines that can be tried out there, and so we're going to go through a sprinkling of them. Let's start with kind of just some first-line things, though. You mentioned in the last episode, Faye, when you talked about mechanism, about the inflammatory nature of endometriosis. So one great place to start is with NSAIDs. NSAIDs, again, are first-line treatment for primary dysmenorrhea, but there's no high-quality data regarding the use of NSAIDs and their efficacy in endometriosis. 
They're low cost and readily available though, and can easily be combined with combined hormonal contraceptive therapy. So they're a great adjunct at the very least, if not a primary treatment. That brings us next to talk about those combined hormonal contraceptives, estrogen and progestin combined. These are the first line treatment for endometriosis specifically because they can be used long-term, they're well tolerated, and they're relatively easy to use. No specific formulation of combined hormonal contraceptives has demonstrated superiority over another. Um, both cyclic and continuous dose regimens appear to be effective at reducing pain. Two systematic reviews that reported that continuous combined oral contraceptive regimens were more effective at reducing pain than cyclic use. When we talked about combined hormonal contraceptives previously with Dr. Sridhar, you could take all of the pills in one pack and then move on to the next pack with the placebos and that's taking it cyclically versus taking it continuously where you basically skip those placebo weeks. Um, continuous use really works well um, and so that's what these systematic reviews advocate for. Combined oral contraceptives though suppress ovarian function while they're being taken and can reduce endometriosis disease activity and pain by that mechanism. Obviously, there are some risks and benefits of taking combined hormonal contraceptives, and there are many people that can't take these medications because of the estrogen components in particular. Again, check out that episode with Dr. Shrithar. We'll link to it on the website just for your re-listening about um, combined hormonal contraceptives. It's really, really helpful. Faye, I think people can also take progestins too. For people that can take estrogen, then the next step is really to discuss with them progestin-only therapy. Most commonly, this will come in the form of norethindrone acetate 5 milligrams by mouth daily, but that can also be increased by 2.5 milligrams until you get to a max of 15 milligrams a day. Other forms would be things like Depo-Provera, which is basically like the birth control where you give 150 milligrams IM every 12 weeks. And this is because we think that progestins inhibit endometrial tissue growth. It also doesn't carry the risk of VTEs that we see with combined contraceptives and also can avoid some risk of bone loss and menopausal symptoms that are associated with other treatment types like those GnRH agonists or antagonists. However, there are side effects to progestins as well, and those include things like increased risk of breakthrough bleeding when compared to combined uh, forms. There can be uh, a risk of weight gain with Depo-Provera, and as well as mood changes. The alternative here is to consider those things like the etonergestrel implants, so um, in the United States known as Nexplanon. Um, there was an observational trial of 41 women that showed that it did decrease the intensity of endometriosis-related pain. Um, and also, we can consider something like the levonorgestrel IUD. There's limited evidence for the use of levonorgestrel IUDs by themselves. There is some data that post-operative IUDs can reduce the recurrence of dysmenorrhea in patients who have surgically confirmed endometriosis. The next step after progestins as combined hormonal contraceptives is when we start looking at our gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists and antagonists. So in terms of agonists, the main one that I'm familiar with, Nick, is luprolide, which I feel like we talk about all the time, but there are other ones like bucerellin and gosterellin that I'm sure you know our friend uh, Andre Delinko can talk to us much more about. The one that I know most about is luprolide. 
There has been a meta-analysis that shows that they are more effective than placebo at controlling the symptoms of endometriosis and just as effective as other medical therapies. The common dosing for luprolide is 3.7 milligrams IM every month or 11.25 milligrams every three months. But remember, this is a GnRH agonist, and so that means that the initial pulse of that agonist can actually lead to that increased initial LH and FSH surge, which can also worsen symptoms for a little while due to that initial surge before it eventually suppresses the HPO access. So you should always warn your patients that if you're giving them something like luprolide, they may actually have worsening symptoms for the first one to two weeks. We also have to talk about the hypoestrogenic effects of GnRH agonists. And so to counteract those things, especially in patients who are not yet menopausal, you need to warn them about those menopausal symptoms and may vasomotor symptoms. What we'll usually do is do add-back therapy, meaning 5 milligrams of oral norethindrone to try and counteract some of those hypoestrogenic effects, as well as trying to counteract some of those bone loss effects that can occur with GnRH agonists. GnRH antagonists work very similarly to GnRH agonists, but without that initial LH and FSH surge. But remember, these can also induce that hypoestrogenic state and cause all of those uncomfortable vasomotor symptoms, as well as increase the risk of loss of bone density. However, GnRH antagonists are easier to dose because there are oral formulations rather than the IM formulations. And the one that I feel like was all the rage um, is Alagalex or Oralissa, I believe is a brand name. And that can be dosed 150 milligrams daily up to 200 milligrams twice daily. Anything else, Nick, that's out there that we can use to treat endometriosis? Like what happens if we kind of come all the way down this line and patients still don't feel like their endometriosis pain is being adequately controlled? Yeah, there are a couple other things that are out there. So one is Danazol. Um, Danazol is an androgen-like medication that can be effective in reducing pain, but again, it's not as commonly in use because of those often unwanted androgenic side effects. Aromatase inhibitors can also be considered off-label, and these are typically reserved, again, for severe refractory endometriosis-related pain, often in combination with progestins. There's very limited data for aromatase inhibitors, so if you're thinking about this, I probably would get subspecialty involvement um, to consider. Again, limited data overall, but does seem to decrease pain compared to placebo. And similarly to the GnRH, antagonists can cause those hypoestrogenic side effects. Neuropathic pain treatments such as gabapentin or pregabalin can also be considered. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more now about just some other types of pain control During our chronic pelvic pain episode with Dr. Reyna, we talked about how this kind of acute pain from endometriosis that can be cyclic and long-lasting ultimately can lead to a cycle for a lower threshold of a stimulus to cause pain known as central sensitization. So basically, this acute pain becomes chronic pain over time, responding to less and less stimuli to provoke symptoms. Thus, with this, you may need some neuropathic treatments like gabapentin to decrease sensitization, and you should remind patients that gabapentin doesn't take pain away immediately and needs to be used consistently for several weeks to see an effect. There may also need to be adjunctive therapy such as pelvic floor physical therapy to help kind of with the desensitization type of process. 
We have to mention opioids here really quickly too, because patients with endometriosis and pelvic pain, particularly who are being referred to a gynecologist for the first time, may have received opioids for pain relief when presenting for treatment urgently, like through an emergency department. Really, opioids should be used sparingly and avoided truthfully for endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain because they really only treat the symptom and that acute pain, and they don't help to address the underlying issues. And again, I don't think it bears a lot of focus at this point, but we know that opioids can lead to dependence, overuse, and abuse. Um, so really try and exhaust your other options before you're thinking about opioids. So speaking of other options, Faye, we've kind of run out of our medical therapies at this point, I think. So what about surgery? Yeah, so there are many, many surgeries out there for endometriosis, all the way ranging from things like simple ablation to adhesiolysis to nerve transections, which I've never seen or done, to hysterectomies. And we're going to cover a few here. Um, most of these can be kind of, you know, divided into conservative versus definitive management. And I think a lot of times, you know, patients can get frustrated with us because medications sometimes, you know, they may need to have changes in their medication. It may take a while before the medications can actually take effect. And a lot of people feel like, well, surgery, you can just go in and take out all the endometriosis and I won't have pain anymore, right? And, you know, that's kind of partially true. So surgery offers that benefit of definitive diagnosis, but it also risks damage to the organs around the uterus and around where those endometriosis lesions are, especially if there's a heavy burden of adhesions um, around the bladder and bowel and other organs. Most people will achieve initial pain relief after surgery, so definitely surgery can decrease your pain. Um, one study showed that women who underwent operative laparoscopy were three times more likely to report improvement in pain at 12 months than controls who had diagnostic laparoscopy. So again, those who had an operative laparoscopy, more likely to report improvement in pain. However, nearly 20% of patients will then undergo repeat surgery within two years because of recurrent symptoms, and risk of symptoms recurrence is as high as 40% at 10-year follow-up. So the major risk factor here, again, is that you don't want to keep going back again and again into a pelvis that presumably has a lot of adhesions in it where you could potentially increase your risk of doing damage to other organs. Risk factors for persistent or recurrent pain include things like incomplete excision, ovarian cyst drainage instead of cystic excision, and ovarian conservation. Endometriosis also does tend to get better with menopause, and so longer latency to menopause usually will give more time for symptoms to recur. So if you're operating on a really young patient, for example, in their 20s, they are more likely to have symptom recurrence than if you're operating on someone who is in their 40s. Postoperative medical therapy is advised by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. They advise that all women who are treated surgically should undergo 6 to 24 months of suppression to reduce symptom recurrence and also potentially avoid need for multiple surgeries very close together. The best evidence for this comes from two systematic reviews, one using um, levonorgestrel IUD and another for postoperative use of combined oral contraceptives for prevention of relapse. All right, Nick, so I've kind of discussed here a little bit the risk and benefits of doing surgery. So now let's actually move on to the types of surgeries that you can do. Again, we can talk about conservative surgeries and definitive surgeries, um, but let's start with conservative. Laparoscopy is generally favored over laparotomy because of the fact that it's less invasive. It has good visualization of implants in particular. Um, you can get 
quicker recovery and a shorter hospital stay and overall less surgical pain. So that's what we generally would prefer to do. With conservative therapies laparoscopically, you can do things as simple as excision or ablation of endometriosis lesions with the intent of preserving as much of the uterus and ovarian tissue as possible. This is, I think, the first-line option for most people, particularly when you're doing that first surgery at diagnosis that preserves fertility and hormone function too. Even in young patients who don't want fertility, hormone production is necessary for bone and cardiac health in later life, so preserving those ovaries is really, really important. And again, trying to just do the ablative surgery is best in that circumstance. This is less invasive and less morbid, obviously, than definitive surgeries, and there's documented short-term efficacy based on a 2014 systematic review that showed decreased pain and increased subsequent live birth rates after conservative surgeries. Disadvantages of these conservative surgeries, though, is that the rate of recurrent symptoms is obviously going to be higher compared to a definitive surgery, and the rate of reoperation does increase with time, um, whereas it's relatively stable with definitive surgeries. Definitive surgeries can basically fall into two groups, hysterectomy without or with oophorectomy. So a hysterectomy without oophorectomy is indicated for patients who have debilitating symptoms and who have completed childbearing, who have failed both medical therapy and at least one conservative treatment procedure, and is reasonable to consider also if there are other indications for hysterectomy like symptomatic fibroids or pelvic organ prolapse, etc. Without doing oophorectomy, this does seem to be an effective treatment for pain symptoms for endometriosis with reoperative rates that are actually pretty low, ranging from 19% in one study compared to 58% in people who underwent conservative therapy in that particular study. However, without oophorectomy, there is the disadvantage of a potentially longer, more morbid surgery with higher rates of complication and subsequent reoperation. Hysterectomies with oophorectomy can also be considered and again are truly definitive because you're removing the ovaries, the source of those hormones that are causing sort of the up and down cycling of those endometriotic implants. Those who benefit from this are those with extensive adnexal disease and those for whom the risks of reoperation will outweigh the risk of premature menopause. This likely increases the efficacy of definitive surgery, but it can be accompanied again in that premenopausal patient by quality of life issues and potential adverse outcomes due to early menopause. Again, endometriosis is estrogen dependent, so it's going to get better with menopause, and so that is something that you certainly should weigh risk-benefit of. It's important to note that early menopause, specifically less than 44 years of age, is associated with increased risks of overall mortality, cardiovascular disease, neurologic disease, and osteoporosis, just to name a few. So again, we prefer not to take out ovaries in those younger patients, but it is a risk-benefit discussion that you should have with your patient. All right, Faye, I think that we've made it to the end of the treatment portion of our podcast on endometriosis. Why don't we summarize? Sure. So we first started to talk about the treatment of endometriosis based on approach. So again, this should be based on the severity of symptoms and also exclude first other causes of pelvic pain. Usually we will try medications first because of the risks of surgery like recovery and cost, as well as discuss with your patient whether or not they want future fertility. Also remember to tell your patients that endometriosis is a chronic disease and while it can't be cured, it certainly can be managed. Medications that we can consider are things like NSAIDs in combination with estrogen progesterone contraceptives. Again, those NSAIDs are to treat that COX-2 pathway to hopefully decrease the prostaglandin release and then your combined 
um, hormonal contraceptives are able to be used either cyclically or continuously to suppress ovarian function and therefore reduce endometriosis disease activity and pain. Other medications that we talked about today include progestins for folks who can't take estrogen that can be administered orally with norethindrone, for instance, by Adepo-Provera for a longer acting, um, or alternatives such as an esonergestrel implant or a levonorgestrel intrauterine device. Um, progestins give advantage in the facts that they inhibit endometrial tissue growth and don't carry the risk of venous thromboembolism like combined hormonal contraceptives, but can include side effects such as breakthrough bleeding, weight gain, particularly with Depo-Provera, and mood changes. Um, we then talked about gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists such as luprolide um, that can be given intramuscularly monthly or every three months. Important to remember about the GnRH agonists is that these will worsen symptoms for one to two weeks before eventually suppressing the HPO axis um, and getting the desired treatment effect. Because of the hypoestrogenic effects of these medications, you usually will do add-back therapy with oral norethindrone. GnRH antagonists, on the other hand, directly suppress the HPO axis, so you can start immediately without that initial LH and FSH surge. The treatment that's all the rage currently is Elagolix, also known as Oralissa. Other medications we talked about include Danazole, aromatase inhibitors, and then other pain treatments, things like gabapentin, pelvic floor physical therapy, and just remembering about the sensitization theory of chronic pelvic pain and staying away from opioids. In terms of surgical treatment, we discussed that there are many, many surgeries out there for endometriosis, all the way from conservative to definitive treatment. Surgery does offer benefit in terms of decreasing pain, but we need to remember that there are risks to surgery, such as damage or injury to other organs around the endometriotic lesions. And while people will initially achieve pain relief from surgery, especially in conservative management, women often will need to undergo reoperation as soon as two years after their initial surgery. Risk factors for things like persistent or recurrent pain include things like incomplete excision, ovarian cyst drainage, and ovarian conservation. While we also know that endometriosis tends to get better with menopause, and also post-operative medical therapy seems to decrease the likelihood of symptom recurrence. Surgical techniques we discussed include using laparoscopy because it is less invasive and improves visualization. Conservative therapy include things like excision or ablation of endometriotic lesions and is usually first-line option, especially for patients who want to preserve their fertility. However, we do know that there is an increased rate of recurrent symptoms with conservative therapy. Definitive therapy include things like hysterectomy with or without oophorectomy, and this should be considered for patients who have debilitating symptoms and who have completed childbearing. However, we need to remember that this is a more risky surgery because it is more morbid and there are also higher rates of complications um, and increased need to stay in the hospital potentially afterwards. Especially with oophorectomy, this can place your patients into early menopause if they are less than 44 years of age, and this is associated with increased risk of overall mortality, cardiovascular disease, neurological disease, and osteoporosis, just to name a few. All right, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriags Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of your other favorite podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Kriags Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Kriags Over Coffee. Or if you love the show, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Coffee. 
Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. We have show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a question for us, have a correction to today's episode or any of our other episodes, please, please email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.